Amen. Amen. I just love that phrase in that song. It says, we will not be moved though the earth gives way. Right? It's felt a little bit like that, hadn't it, over the last couple of weeks? <laughs> What's going on? What is happening? And yet, uh, we will not be moved. Not because of our strong footing and our ability, but because we stand on the rock of Jesus. That's the firm foundation of who he is, our God. Hey, thanks for being with us this morning, whether you're here with us on campus and you're social distancing and you're doing all the stuff, we appreciate it. Uh, We still want to be careful and have due diligence in all of that uh, as the COVID-19 thing is still going going in strong, full force. Or whether you're watching online, we're just glad you're with us today. Either way, it's good to be together. Uh, I was over there and my heart, I just felt my heart heavy. I'm just ready for this to be over because I miss our, our body. I, I love you that are here, and I'm so, so grateful that you're here, but I so miss the people we're not seeing, and I so miss being together, and I'll be, I'll be glad when this weariness and this season is over and we can celebrate again together as one body together on this campus, right? And uh, in God's timing, it'll happen. Hey, well, thanks for being with us. Uh, we're starting a, a sort of a new series it's an old new series, right? It's one that we've been in uh, for, this will be our fourth summer in the series called Acts, the story of the church. We just finished up a series called Ecclesia, uh, and, and that was a timely series, and I honestly, I'll be, I'll be, I think this is going to be just as timely. Um, I love the book of Acts. It is probably my favorite book in the entire uh, Bible. Sometimes it can read like a history book, and if that's your mindset and what, the way you're looking at it, then that's what you'll see. But if you look closer, if you look at a 30,000-foot view, you'll begin to see that it's so much more than the history of the story of the church. It is also the playbook for the story of the church. It's also the, the, the diagram, the formula, uh, the house plans, if you will, for what the church is supposed to be. And so that's the way I want us to continue to look at it. And we're going to, listen, I'll be honest with you, this morning it's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant. Okay, you ready? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna recap 17 chapters, and we're going to talk about the top 10 things that happened in 17 chapters, all right? Uh, now, it could have been a top 30 list for, all, uh, for that reason, because uh, there's so much that happened, but I had to narrow it down to, to 10. I don't know if you, I watched David Letterman some when I was a kid growing up, and one of the funniest things that Dave used to do was the top 10 list. So this is similar in that it's 10, but this won't be funny. I don't know. Anyway, it's a top 10 list, and we're going to go the wrong direction. We're going to go one from 10, but anyway. Uh, So those of you that don't know a lot about the book of Acts, it's written by a guy by the name of Luke. Uh, He was not an apostle. A lot of people get confused with that because this is the same guy that wrote the gospel of Luke, right? We got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's not an apostle. Uh, He is a follower of Paul. He's connected to Paul, one of the things that's so cool, I think, about Luke is that when you're reading the book of Acts, there's moments where he says they, and he's speaking in a third person. So he's telling about the mission that's taking place and the, all these exciting things that's taking place. And then all of a sudden, we see, we saw last summer, I believe, when they got into Europe and Macedonia, all of a sudden he said we, which means he was then placed in the story on mission with Paul. And I just kind of love looking for those little clues that change sort of, the way, sort of the way the story goes. It's different when you're hearing from a storyteller, from somebody who's been there watching it all go down. And Luke has done uh, much of that anyway. So this is a 30,000-foot view, the, the book of Acts, of basically the, thir- the first 35 years of Jesus building the church, Jesus growing the church, and the mission of Jesus going forward. So uh, Acts was written... Like I said, by Luke, he wrote the, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, but he, he had sort of another part of the gospel of Luke. It's a secondary part called Acts. In fact, many people refer to the, both books as Luke-Acts, almost as if they're supposed to go together. They were written to the same person, a guy by the name of Theophilus. So not only was this written to Theophilus so for a historical record of what Jesus' ministry was and all the things that he told us in his ministry, but it was also a record of uh, the mission of Jesus going forward. Uh, and like I said, it was more than that. It was actually also God using this book to show us what the church is actually supposed to be. So one thing that's very interesting about the book of Acts is it's sectioned into different sections. And it's really easy to miss this. It's really easy to miss these sections. And I'm not going to go through the time uh, to give these exact sections. I'll mention some of them, but 
they're broken up into six sections. When you pull back at a greater lens, kind of a, a wide lens over the book of Acts, you see six different sections of the book of Acts. All of those sections are around one theme. That theme is the mission of Jesus going forward. But there's so much exciting things going on. There's so much adventure. There's so much heartache. There's so much uh, persecution and struggle that you kind of get lost in all that's going on. But the reality is there's one main theme that Luke wants his reader to know. And I'm thankful that we get to benefit from the letter to Theophilus as well. But and that is that the mission of Jesus is all important. So uh, this morning I want to kind of just skim over some of these sections. We're not going to dig deep into them. But the first section we see is one about Jerusalem. It starts from chapter 1 and goes through uh, chapter 6, verse 7. Basically, the beginning of the church was a very Jewish church. And it happened in Jerusalem. Uh, that's, right, the place where the temple took place. There we see miracles taking place. We see persecution going on. And in Acts 6-7, which sort of closes the first section, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many uh, of the priests became obedient to the faith. So even that, there's a mention there even about the fact that many priests in the temple come to faith in Christ. So this is when the church was basically a Jewish Christian church. They're still sort of living out these Jewish things and this Jewish life, still meeting. It says in Acts 2, they would meet in the temple daily. So this is still a very Jewish section. Second section is about Judea and Samaria. Uh, and it goes all the way through a uh, section through uh, chapter 9, verse 30. What's interesting about this is the scattering, the persecution, the gospel going forth in the middle of what is a horrible moment. The third section is about an amazing church in Syria called Antioch, and it closes at uh, 1224. And that is about salvation to Gentiles and the, the church being a mission-sending center. And it's, man, I love the church of Antioch. We're going to get into it a little bit here in a little bit. Um, then the next section is about Paul's missionary journeys in Asia Minor. Uh, and it wraps up in, in 16.5. And then there's an Aegean section that wraps up in chapter 19. And then the last nine and a half ver chapters or so are based around Paul's, the rest of Paul's life and ministry and, and how he finishes well in Rome. Uh, and so this is, those are sort of the sections that are laid out uh, by Luke. Now we've covered four of those six sections in the summers that we've gone through. Some of you are going, why in the world is it taking you so long to finish a a letter, right? Well, we're going verse by verse, and it takes a little while. We don't want to rush my favorite book, do we? I mean, come on. So, so we've done four to six of these chapters. This summer, we're going to go through five, and we're going to enter the sixth section as well. So like I said, I think this is a timely, center, uh, timely series. I believe that because the book of Acts is not finished. If the theme of the book of Acts is the, the, the forward movement of the gospel of Jesus— to the world, it's not done. We find ourselves in the middle of this story. I, I, the other day, I was watching this movie Tolkien. Who you know, who he's the guy that wrote uh, the Lord of the Rings, and it was his autobiographical story of his life. And he's in World War One, and he's dealing with different things. And occasionally, he'd have these visions of dragons and these visions of crazy stuff. And you can go, "Wow, that makes sense of how the movie came to be," you know. It's like he found himself in the middle of the story that he was going to be writing. And so kind of like Paul found himself in the middle of the story of Acts, we find ourselves in the middle of an unfinished story of Jesus moving his mission forward to the world. We're not done yet. And until every uh, nation hears the gospel of Jesus, we won't be, right? So we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. Um, a lot of people refer to the book of Acts as the, the Acts of the Apostles. It's not a great name. It really should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of Jesus because this is his mission. And it's all about him. Uh, we're still seeking to bring people to know Jesus. We're still seeking to establish believers in the faith. We still want to plant churches. That's all activity of Acts. And uh, I believe God is not finished uh, with that mission. So before we get into this, I want to just pray for us and pray that God would help you put your seatbelts on because we're about to, about to go through 17 chapters pretty quick, okay? 
So would you pray with me and ask the Lord to open our hearts to what he wants us to hear today, not just information, but how he wants to change us as a result of being in his word. Father, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you, Father, that uh, you love people. God, your heart is that people know you as their savior. That is your mission. Your heart is that people live the best life they can possibly live, and that's the life that you've called them to, a life in you. Not a life on their own, not a life making their own decisions, doing whatever they want. That is foolishness. It feels like freedom, but your word says it's bondage. God, you call us to true freedom, and that is life in you, knowing you. And when we live that life, it's a life lived abundantly, you say in John 10, 10. So Lord, I know that we come together this morning maybe with heavy hearts, with weary hearts, and yet you've called us to know you more. You've called us to be about this mission that is yours, that is unfinished. And so prepare our hearts as we recap the first 17 chapters of Acts and we look at all that you've been doing, God, up till now. What is it that you want to do from today moving forward for your glory and for the good of our city? Make us aware, make us awake, and give us courage to be used by you, Lord, for your glory on your mission in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, so the first thing I want you to see, you ready? Everybody ready? All right, here we go. First thing I want you to see is that this is not our mission. This is Jesus' mission. Yes, he involves men and women on mission. Yes, we are all involved, but make no mistake about the fact that this is Jesus' mission. It's not ours. It's his. Look with me, Acts 1, verse 3. He says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, speaking of Jesus, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, uh, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. This is Jesus' mission. And I'm going to show you a few things to, to help prove that. But you might even remember in Jesus' ministry, he says in Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church. Remember that? This is my kingdom. I will build my church. I'm going to take care of this. This is what I am going to do. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, you might remember the Great Commission that happened just before what we were just reading here. Jesus says to the disciples, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that, uh, that, that I've commanded you. So again, this is Jesus' mission. This is important to me. By the way, it says here in, in Acts 1, 8 or 9 right there that as soon as he finished saying that I'm, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to empower you to be my witnesses all over uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world, Jesus is lifted up into heaven, right? Do you think the last thing that he said is an important thing? <laughs> you know how when you're leaving parents to go on a trip and there's that last moment with the finger, you know, it's like, do not, right, touch the dot, dot, dot. Do not or make sure this is Jesus in that moment saying, friends, this is, this is it, this is all important. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to empower you. And when I do, you're going to have what you need to be my witnesses all over the world. But this is his mission. And as you read through the book of Acts, you can't help but tell that he is the one providing all the miracles. He's the one doing all the things that the disciples can't do. And I'm so comforted by that. You know, for the last three and a half years, God in his grace has allowed me to pastor this church. And... <laughs> I'm telling you, it is, it's almost comical how the Lord has been so good that he just lays out like the step to the bridge, the next step, and then the next step, and then the next person, and the next couple, and the next family, and the next series, and, the, and I'm just kind of going, doo -doo 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 -doo. okay, I'm just, I don't, you know, I'm like, Lord, show me what you want me to see, because I'm not smart enough, I'm not holy enough, I'm not good enough, I, I just need to, to come before you and, and just say, Lord, I need you. And in his grace and goodness, he has provided everything we've needed. 
That's what we see in Acts. They're not any different than us. These are normal, fallen, broken fishermen. People who, who they're, they're not good enough either. And yet they lay before the Lord and depend upon him. And he lays out the mission that is his before them. Here's the second thing. Number one, it's his mission. Number two, Pentecost. What a huge moment in the early church. Chapter 2 in, in Acts, it says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, when they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested uh, on each one of them. So this is what's taking place right here in this moment. This is Jesus keeping his word, right? Acts 1.8, I'm going to, he said, stay put, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. What just happened? He just kept his word. He sent the Holy Spirit. And what happens, this crazy thing, and I can't even describe it appropriately, fire of some kind sits on every single believer. What's cool about this is all through Scripture, fire represents the special relational presence of God. Whether it be a pillar of fire, whether it be a burning bush, Whatever the case may be, it's the special relational presence of God going, I'm with you. And what's amazing is it doesn't have to happen in a bush for one leader. Now, God's saying to every believer, I am with you. I'm in you. The Holy Spirit resides in you when you know Jesus. And so this is an incredible relational moment. The Spirit comes. Uh, we, it says that it comes like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The other night it was thundering and about to rain and I took we got a little puppy so I'm outside a lot all of a sudden now and I'm walking the puppy and all of a sudden the wind starts blowing we have a lot of trees behind our house and I was thinking about this verse and I just stopped and I closed my eyes and I was just like taking it in you know and I was like oh my gosh I can't imagine the sound of the mighty rushing wind of the spirit and the fire comes upon people and then people begin to speak in other languages a crazy, crazy moment. Some theologians refer to this as the Lord reversing the curse. That's the third thing I want to talk to you about. Okay? First of all, it's his mission. The second thing happens is Pentecost, and then he reverses the curse. Look with me, Acts 2, 4 through 8. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So this is not gibberish. These are known languages of known nationalities. And there were people at Pentecost there in Jerusalem from all over the known world. And as the Holy Spirit fills believers and they speak in these different languages, people perk up and go, wait, I, that's my language. Who knows that they start shifting around to get closer, to hear their language. And God is speaking through these people the glory of who Jesus is, Messiah. He's speaking through these people languages they don't normally speak, who he is. He's preparing their hearts for salvation in this beautiful beautiful moment. So this is, this is crazy. And I just got to ask you a question. What do you think this says about a God and what he feels about missions to, to nations around the world? Thank you for thinking about it for a minute. When the first time the Holy Spirit, it moves in, right? And the first thing that happens is people start speaking in the languages of other nations. Do you think God wants us to reach the world? Do you think God wants the church to be a multicultural church? There's no question. There's no question. The first thing that the Spirit does is a multicultural, multinational moment. It's called reversing the curse because of this. a very interesting study. If you look in the book of Genesis, in chapter 11, there's a story about a place called the Tower of Babel. You know, there's, I think there's a... Um, language program now called Babel, that, you know, which is interesting. Uh, but the concept is, this story tells us that uh, the people of the earth, this is early civilization, early creation in essence, the people are all together, they all speak one language, they use the same words, and they're becoming a very proud people. And so they start building this place called the Tower of Babel with bricks, and they want to build it to uh, the heavens, and they want to be like the devil, really, because 
the devil said, I want to be like God and I want to place my throne above God. That's exactly the same thing the people at the Tower of Babel said. They said, we want to make a name for ourselves. In essence, the same thing. We're a prideful people. We want to build something up and be known for something. Well, God sees that. He comes down and he disrupts that one language. And here we, we see him create nationalities and different languages and different people groups to confuse them in that moment. And as he confuses them, they go away confused and they're separated. And we have a lot of difficulty in the separation of nationalities and languages, don't we? But in this moment at Pentecost, God reverses the curse. And this is what I mean. At one point he said, you have one nation or one uh, language and I'm going to separate that into multiple languages. Here he's saying, yes, you're going to have multiple languages, but I'm going to bring you together and I'm going to help you understand one thing, that Jesus is Lord. And what's cool about this is is basically what God is saying is now you're going to disband and you're going to leave this place and hopefully you're going to go to make me famous. So this is a reversal of that moment. This is a a beautiful and interesting study. Uh, The fourth thing. One of my favorite things in all the world is you. It's you. It's the church. I love the church. Now listen, we get it wrong all the time. We have messed up the church in so many ways it's not even funny over centuries, right? But I love the church. The church already existed in some form before Pentecost. Uh, Jesus was building his church. He was establishing leaders of the church. He was showing us Uh, The kingdom of God, which should be the way that the people of the church live and act and move. So it sort of already existed, but at Pentecost, it really began to take an organizational form. And it sort of happens with Peter preaching boldly. Do you remember Peter at the fireplace denying Christ three times? Remember that? He was, this is a, a... A Peter that you don't want to remember. This is a guy that he's... He's, he's not honoring Christ with his life, and yet just a little while later, maybe a month later, maybe six weeks, he's preaching so boldly at Pentecost. He stands up before the very same people that crucified Christ, and he preaches this incredible message. And look what it says in Acts 2.37. He says, now when they heard this, speaking of the message he preaches about Jesus, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter begins to preach and he says, hey, the Messiah that you've been reading about your whole lives, the Messiah that we've been reading in in all these scriptures, 1500 years, he came. And you crucified him. And conviction sits in on the hearts of these men and women. And they say, what do we do? What have we done? Peter says, repent and be baptized. In that moment, 3,000 believers come to know Christ. The church blows up from 120 believers to 3,120. Right? That's a pretty, pretty good day at the church. Uh, and Luke begins to show us, I mean, right after that, in that moment, the beauty and design of the church. Look with me if you would. Acts 41, maybe my favorite section of scripture. I just love it. So those who, uh, this is chapter two, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What an unbelievable snapshot of the beautiful church. I mean, just gorgeous. People living life together, being honest with each other, sharing things together, learning together, praying together, doing communion together, witnessing together. They were together all the time. You know, I I did a video for our church the other day, and I was just trying to encourage and trying to say, hey, you know what? It's good when we can be together. 
Like right now, it's a good thing that you have all made the intentional choice to be here or to watch online. It's, it's a good thing that in this moment, right now, at this time, we can be together and we can learn and we can grow and we can pray. And if, if that's all we did was just come together for an hour and a half in service and an hour and a half for your city group, that's about three hours out of your week. That's not a whole lot of time. These folks were meeting every day. So you're saying, wait, are you, where are we going with this? Are you wanting us to meet every day? I don't know. I'm not saying no to that, but what I am saying is we need to do life together. The church is more than a service. The church, the church is more than a small group. The church is living life together, honestly, confessionally, sharing vulnerably, caring for one another in a beautiful way. And when we do, our lives overlap. Our faith becomes something more than we just say. It's something that's lived out and seen. And when we live that way, people around us go, what is up with these people? Who knows that maybe if we met every day that God would save people day by day. Who knows? But it's so good when we do meet together, when we do make it a priority, when we are a people of intention and we see this as a high value. Uh, Acts 4 also speaks about sharing things together. Another beautiful passage about the church. I'm, I'm so thankful we have the privilege to be a part of the family of the church. The family of families. But I will tell you, every church since that church in Acts 2, every church has sort of looked back at that church and wished it looked like that church. Right? This is a beautiful design for what the church can be. And we continually look back and lean back towards this original model and pray that God would continue to simplify and deepen our hearts with one another so we can look a little bit more like that. Here's the fifth thing I want to show you this morning. Persecution. Jesus said that he was persecuted. And if he was persecuted, his followers would be persecuted. That's you and me. That's all the people that we're reading about here in Acts that are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now persecution, in fact, Jesus' death itself was obviously an act of persecution. They wanted to snuff out the leader. They wanted to kill Jesus, and they did. It was an act of persecution. But we see in the book of Acts, that just kind of, it settles for a while. We get the Acts 2 passage in the church. There's a season where the church seems uh, not as worried about persecution. And then a little bit later, all of a sudden, it, it, it intensifies. And we really see it intensify beginning around chapter 7 of Acts. This is when uh, we see one of the leaders that has been put forward by the Hellenist community. Remember, they, they voted for seven leaders who are good godly men that can help the apostles do some things that need to be done. They're kind of, we call them today deacons. And they called them back in that day deacons, in essence. But who are some guys that can kind of come alongside and serve where there's need? And their role is to may, maybe help uh, with food distribution, maybe some money distribution, caring for widows and orphans, just be available and serve. But what's so cool is the men who were just supposed to kind of serve a little bit were also amazing evangelists. They were also amazing men of God, right? They were overqualified for, for waiters of tables. They, they had an amazing life in Christ. And one of those men was a guy by the name of Stephen. And he's captured one day and he's brought before the Sanhedrin. And they're like, what's the deal, Stephen? And Stephen lays out this beautiful message in Acts 7. I challenge you to read it. Beautiful, long, beautiful message. And he, he basically comes down and says, you crucified the Messiah. Well, they get so angry with Stephen that they literally rush at him in the moment with stones and murder him in that spot. Well, after Stephen is killed, a little bit later, uh, John's brother James is killed by the sword. And so now persecution is just heightened and growing and the church is fearful. Look with me in Acts 8. Verse 1, it says, And there arose on that day, the day, speaking of when Stephen was, was murdered, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Verse 2, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love that last sentence. Can I just tell you something? God uses brokenness. 
God uses chaos. God can use anything. Can you imagine the chaos of the moment when people are being murdered in Jerusalem for being Christian? You know, we don't think about uh, the Iraqi Christians that, that often are the Chinese Christians, but, you know, the Iraqi Christians believed in Christ, and ISIS was coming into their homes and dragging men and women out, burning in China right now. They're burning down churches. In, in Iraq, people are having to literally put things on their back because they can't stay in their home and leave. That's exactly what was happening in Jerusalem. People had to leave. They had just flee for their lives. The chaos would have been overwhelming, and I couldn't help but think about, try to picture that in my mind and see sort of what we've been seeing on TV the last week and a half. I mean, it's just been crazy to watch what's going on in the world. And it can be frightening. And just imagine these believers coming together going, they're, they're killing Christians. They're killing us. What do we do? What seemed to be like the end of a movement, what seemed to be like the squashing of this uh, revolution that Jesus had started, and they say, well, we just got to go, we just got to go. But the cool thing about this moment is they, they, they take with them the life-changing transformation of Jesus and his grace. But they don't only keep it in their hearts, they speak it with their lives and with their mouths. They go, and now it says, verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love that. And can I just tell you, it makes me hopeful for the chaotic moment we're living in. It makes me go, God, if you've used chaos like that before to advance your mission, maybe you can do it now, Lord. Maybe you will do it now. We know you can. Lord, if, we, if we've seen you do things that seem unbelievable and don't you know the believers in Jerusalem just thought this was over. We just got to run and hide. But who knew that God used the scattering of believers? By the way, what did Jesus say in, in Acts 1.8? I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to empower you to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Let's see here what it says in verse 1. And they arose on the day of great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. They're fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus. In a chaotic and crazy moment that seems like this thing is over, friends, it's just begun. And God is moving his mission forward because it's his mission. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It won't happen. And so the people move and they leave and they take with them the life-changing, transformational grace of Jesus God uses horrible situations. And my prayer for our country is that in this moment, he will use the brokenness of our country, the brokenness uh, of injustice and this racial divide that we feel and all the things that are going on and, and who knows who's behind what and whatever, right? It's just a mess. But my prayer is that God would use believers, would use us to love well and to take the life-changing transformational grace and message of Jesus wherever we go. Amen? That's the hope. Here's the sixth thing. I mentioned a guy in the last section of, of passages. He's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. He's a bounty hunter. And uh, in fact, let me just mention what he was doing here in verse three. It says, but Saul, in, verse, in chapter eight, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Not a good person, but look, look what happens to Saul in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, But Saul, same guy, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Do you know how far it is from Jerusalem to Damascus? 172 miles. Was this guy insane or what? He was hell-bent on persecuting Christians, killing Christians. He had pleasure uh, when, when Stephen was murdered, the story tells us in Acts, 8, uh, uh, Acts 7, that they brought the, uh, the robes, the coats of the people who got hot, throwing rocks to murder Stephen. They brought the robes to, to Saul so that he could sit there and watch this thing go down. He was a sadistic murderer. 
But look what God does in his life. He's still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He asked the the, uh, high priest to have letters to the synagogues 172 miles away. So if he found anybody belonging to the way, men or women, he might be able to bring them bound as prisoners back to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Can I just tell you something? Paul, or Saul at the time, was not used to being told what to do, right? This is a powerful, scary individual. Now he is laying flat of his back, humiliated, blinded, and Jesus says, go in the city until I tell you what to do. Jesus is in control, and Saul has no question about that. See, God wanted to use Saul tremendously. In fact, he, he tells the guy that ends up going to Saul to pray over him and baptize him and help him, a guy by the name of Ananias, all that he wants to use Saul for. Look at verse 15. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What an incredible moment. Saul goes from uh, a persecutor to a persecuted preacher. <laughs> Literally, just a few days after this moment with Jesus, he's baptized and then he's ready to preach. And now that I know the truth, now that I know Jesus is Messiah, I'm ready to go. And he starts going into synagogues and it starts getting him in trouble and he's in trouble for the next 35 years of his life. Preaching the message of Jesus, Messiah. And God uses Paul, who later wants to be known as, uh, Saul, who later wants to be known as Paul. Tremendously. He ends up writing 13 books, the majority of the New Testament. And God uses him to establish and organize the church of Jesus. Every one of these just gives me hope, right? Here's the seventh thing. You hanging in there with me? Here's number seven. Peter and the Gentile Pentecost. This is a huge moment uh, for multiple reasons. For 10 years the gospel had really mostly gone almost exclusively to Jews. Mostly, again, you know, that first section of Acts is a, it's a Jewish, it's happening in Jerusalem. For about 10 years, the gospel went to Jewish people. And that's about to change. Peter finds himself on the, on the top of a roof of this place called Joppa, modern-day Tel Aviv. It's a really cool city. I've had some time there. And he's on top of this roof, and he gets this vision And in the vision, it's a crazy story in Acts 10 of a sheet that's let down. And on the sheet are all these unclean animals that that Peter's grown up with as a Jew, knowing that I can't eat these things, and I can't be around these things, and I can't do these things. And then God says, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's like, no way. I can't do that. Those are unclean. God says over and over, kill and eat. And then God has to tell him, Peter, don't call what I've created unclean. Like, I'm trying to tell you something here, pal. I'm trying to show you something new here, buddy. Listen. But what's cool is it was so much more not about food. It was about the hearts and lives of people. See, God was trying to show Peter, I love all people, and salvation is for all people. And it was taking Peter a while to get this through his thick head. Anything happened to you that way before? It took me four semesters to get through college algebra, and I'm not sure that ever got through my thick head. But uh, sometimes it just takes a while to get, get it through your understanding, and Peter was struggling with this. So right out of the vision, Peter hears on the door downstairs, and it's a Roman soldier. A Roman soldier. Uh, that's not a good thing, usually. And the Roman soldier says, God showed my boss, this guy by the name of Cornelius, who's a centurion, and he's over all these Roman soldiers, that we're supposed to have you come and speak to us. Uh, Peter's like, oh, okay. I mean, again, God laying out 
step after step, his will because it's his what? It's his mission. And he takes care of his mission. He builds his church. And so eventually they make their way to Cornelius' house. Peter is so flabbergasted and so blown away, he still can't wrap his mind around what's taking place, what's going on, that Cornelius says, uh, Peter, aren't you supposed to tell us something? <laughs> Peter's like, what, what can I do for you? You know, Peter forgotten that it's his job to preach the gospel of Jesus. And Cornelius goes, aren't, aren't you supposed to tell us something or what? God says that you have a message. And it's like Peter gets the aha moment. Oh, yeah. And Peter preaches a message to Cornelius, to his family, to the soldiers around. Look what happens, Acts 10, 44, he says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, in other words, the Jewish brothers who are Christians, who'd come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. In this moment, Peter's basically, he can't deny what God's doing. It's not just about food that we can all of a sudden eat that was unclean before. No, the people we thought were unclean, they're not unclean anymore. They're people who God loves. They're people who God wants to reach with this beautiful salvation of Jesus. In fact, Peter even says, truly now I understand God shows no partiality. I want, I want to just say that phrase again. Peter said, truly now I understand that God shows no partiality. I pray that our world would know that. I pray that our country would know that. Black, white, red, yellow, <laughs> brown, God shows no partiality. In any people group, he loves every person and he wants them to know his son. So then we see this kind of moving into that third section that Luke shows us in the book of Acts and gets to this place that I really enjoy, the church at Antioch. This is the eighth thing I wanna show you this morning. So the church at Antioch is a pretty interesting place. Uh, let me just start reading. Acts 11, verse 19 says, now those who were scattered, remember the scattering from chapter 8? They're moving out. They're moving through Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and moving. now they're moving on into Syria. This is up into Syria. They're going a long way. So now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Remember, for the first 10 years, it was mainly Jews that you spoke to. But God was doing a new thing, Right? But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, which were Greeks, the Gentiles. And they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas, by the way, was one of those seven godly men who were helping the apostles. And they send Barnabas over to Antioch. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, I love that, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, so much is going on here in this story of the church in Antioch. So people are scattered from Jerusalem because of the persecution. They make their way to uh, Antioch. It's a massive city, 18 different people groups within the city, large walls, large divisions, large sections. And what's cool about that is as, the, as people begin to get saved, they begin to get saved from all those different people groups. See, normally they could, they could comment on a certain people group and go, hey, uh, uh, the Africans, they're over here. The Asians, they're over here. But the problem is they didn't know how to, how, what do you call Christians? Because they didn't have a name yet and they were from the Africans and the Asians and the Romans and the, what do you call them? And so here they came up with a name, Christian. So they could say those people, the people following the way. It just, the, little, the word Christian means little Christ. So 
So that's what they called him. So Barnabas is sent to Jerusalem. He begins to pastor. He realizes he's kind of in over his head. There's a lot of work to be done. Goes and gets Saul from Tarsus. They pastor together for a year in the city of Antioch. And what's so beautiful is Acts 13, which is one of my favorite spots, it shows us this little meeting of elders of the church of Antioch. Chapter 13, verse 1. It says that there are these five guys together. And I think they're probably the same two men that started the church. There's a guy from Cyprus, which is an island. Uh, most likely uh, African descent, most likely black skin color. Serene, Northern Africa, most likely black skin color. Uh, two Middle Eastern men, uh, Paul, Barnabas, and one Roman, Manian, a white guy in essence. Isn't that interesting? So the church that God starts using tremendously is made up of a multicultural uh, group of men. What's God saying about his church? What's he saying about us learning from one another, loving one another, leading together? It's an incredible picture of the unity uh, of these nationalities together. And so they're there praying, they're worshiping, and the Lord says to send out two leaders. Now, you know, a lot of times when we send missionaries uh, sometimes we send missionaries, we go, hey, there's this guy, he's fresh out of college, <laughs> right? And he's, he really loves this part of the, the world and we need to send him over there. That's not what happens here, is it? Who do they send? They send the top two leaders. This is top down. This is a different situation. And I'll be honest with you, it's something that stays on my heart. As we pray about God and growing our church, who will he send? And what, um, hear me saying this, who will he send? It's not about who we want to send. We want to hear him say, I've set apart Daryl and this person or Drew and this person or who, whoever he sends. Who will he send? But the, problem, the thing we need to be aware of is we need to go when he says go, even if it's you. Amen? Okay, thank you, honey. Lori's going to go. So Gentiles are coming to faith. They're being discipled. And, and the church is not just a Jewish church. It is made up of multiple nationalities. And it is a beautiful picture uh, of what Elvis uh, spoke of this morning from Revelation. All right, here's number nine. It's a huge moment in the church in, in theology and doctrine. It's the Jerusalem Council in, in Acts 15. Huge moment. There was a controversy going on in the church, and there were some people, Pharisees most likely, that were saying, hey, if you're going to be saved you got to be circumcised, and you got to follow the rules of the Jewish law. Well, no, because if, we, if, if our salvation is based upon what we can do, our works, the things that we do, then it's based on works, not on grace. And that was the controversy. And it was a huge controversy, and it was kind of causing mission to sort of get stopped up, like, well, what's the answer? What do we do? And so one of the beautiful things we see is the church at Antioch submits itself to the church of Jerusalem. See, there's beauty in submission. There's beauty in submission. There's moments where pastors need to go, I'm, I, we need to submit ourselves to other pastors, other leaders, and learn. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. They submit themselves to the church of Jerusalem. So they go over to this meeting in Jerusalem. Paul, Barnabas, Peter's there. The apostles are there in, in Jerusalem. James, the pastor's there. And they begin to have this controversy, this debate over works versus grace. In fact, they didn't even know if they wanted to let Barnabas in because he wasn't circumcised. And that was a huge controversy. Look with me, Acts 15.1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Look all the way down to verse 5. It says, uh, this is over Barnabas. Is, 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 it's necessary uh, to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. So it's all rules. It's all regulation. But Peter, in his boldness, he steps up. Look here in verse 7. And after there had been much debate, which kind of surprises me that Peter wasn't the first one standing, right? That's kind of his M.O. But after there had been much debate, Peter stands up. He says to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
and he made no distinction between us and them. We're no better than anybody else. Having cleansed their hearts by what? Faith. Having cleansed their hearts by faith, not by works, not by following the, the law. Verse 10. Now, therefore, while you are putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the what? Grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter preaches that salvation is by faith, right? It's by grace. It's by Jesus alone. That's it. It's not by what we do. And Pastor James agrees, and this moment is solidified as a true moment going against a horrible heresy. So then we, when we studied a whole series in the book of Galatians, because Paul had to go and, and fight the same battle all through the churches in Galatia. All right, here's the last one. Number 10. Paul runs into a clash of cultures on he, his uh, different journeys. So finishing 15, chapter 16, going into 17, Paul is going under these different cities. He's on mission. His focus is making disciples. But notice he doesn't just show up and preach and then leave and I'll see you, never see you again. Paul preaches. He establishes believers. He comes back to, to help them be strengthened in their faith. You know, it's kind of like when you work out, you know, your, your muscle gets torn down a little bit. Well, if you don't ever work out again, then it's not going to do any good. But if you continue to tear it up and, and then it heals, then you go tear it up a little bit more and you keep you, this consistent process, you actually get stronger. Your muscle grows. That's what Paul does. He keeps going into these places. And if he can't go, he'll send someone else. If he can't send someone else, he'll write a letter to continue to strengthen and establish believers in the gospel. Sadly, we see Paul and Barnabas split up, split up but the thing that's interesting is he takes one missionary journey and, and, and turns it into two. See, God uses the brokenness of chaos. He uses the brokenness of relationships for his glory. If we let him, he can use anything. Chapter 16, we see the introduction of Timothy and Silas. We see the introduction of Luke into the missionary journey. We see the gospel going into Europe and places like Macedonia and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then we finished last summer with Paul in the city of Athens, incredible city. We see his team preaching in synagogues where there are synagogues. We see him establishing communities, appointing elders, planting churches, training missionaries, strengthening the church, coming back. We see them beaten, uh, imprisoned, run out of town, snuck out of town. <laughs> but every chance they get, they're preaching the gospel of Jesus, and they're doing so contextually. One of the things that I love about the message in Athens, it was the last message we preached on this last summer at the end of chapter 17, and it was Paul standing in this place called the Areopagus, which was a place where they would have all sorts of debates and they would, if anybody had a new idea, they would share that idea. And they loved ideas. They loved, you know, just talking, basically. And they had idols all over the city. It was a city full of idols. And Paul, in his brilliance, saw one of these idols. And evidently, it had a sign on it that said, the unknown God. And what they would do, it was kind of a, it was a pantheistic culture. And so what they, they would they would do is they would have all these idols. They would have an idol to the sun and an idol to the moon and a god to this and a god to that. And in case we missed one, let's put an idol over here to the unknown God, just in case. Well, Paul uses that. He says, hey, you know the, the unknown God over here? Oh, yeah, we've got that one. Paul says, I know him. It's a beautiful moment. And, and of course, you can just feel the, the, the room kind of go, What? No, I know him. I know the unknown God. And he uses the context of this moment and this place to help tell the story of Jesus. He goes all the way back to creation. And he tells about a loving God who sends his only son to die for sinners. And he says, and he proves it, that after his son is dead for three days, he raises him. He resurrects him and proves his power and his love for you. And after that message, some people come to Christ, some people follow Jesus, and it's an incredible moment. 
Listen, I wanted to just pick 10, I could have picked 30 things, but I wanted to pick maybe the 10 most important things that we saw. Paul goes on to continue in these different towns and faces these different persecutions and elements and struggles. And yet the mission is always to make Jesus known. I want to close and I just want to say, what, what does a message like this mean for us? And I keep going back between, yeah, I want to recap and I want you to remember some things, but more importantly, I want us to think about what God's saying to us individually. And the, the big thing for me, there's a couple of big things for me out of this, and that is, it's his mission. You can't read Acts and not see that it's his mission. Every miracle, every salvation, every opportunity, everything he does, prison doors just opening up, right? Amazing things. God is in control of his mission, and I'm confident that he's in control of his mission right here at South City Church. I'm confident that he is not surprised that we have about a third of our congregation sitting in here today. I'm confident that he is not surprised by the craziness in our world. And I'm confident that he has a heart to make his name famous and have people come to know him as Savior. Here in Southwest Little Rock and all over Central Arkansas, I know it. It's his mission. And the only way that's gonna happen is by his Holy Spirit empowering us just as he did those believers in Acts 2. He gave them all that they needed. And notice that the Holy Spirit, by fire, didn't just land on the leaders. He landed on every believer. So if you're saved today, and you know Jesus as your Savior, he has empowered you to be his witness in Little Rock and all the surrounding areas and to the ends of the world. And the good news is he said he'll be with us. I love the fact that we get to see in Acts 2 this beautiful design of the church and my heart for our church is that we continue to work to get back to the simplicity of this, that design of the church. Lastly, I just want to mention to you, I believe God wants his church to be a multicultural one and it just, it breaks, it absolutely breaks my heart what I'm seeing going on in the world and so all I need to do is continue to put at a high value for us what we believe what we know to be true, what we hold together, right? That God loves all people. And that he's called us to be believers together. We see it in the book of Acts. He's calling us to do it here. But can I just tell you, let's not let a crisis be the only reason that causes us to be a witness. Like, let's go because we want to go. Let's go because God has given us the grace of salvation in our own lives and we can't do anything but speak of it. He saved us, he's changed us, he's given us life. How can we not tell people about it? How can we not let that out of who we are? And so let's see it in real ways as we serve, as we uh, do life together and as we live life just in the world. And people go, what's your deal? I'm a mess apart from Jesus, that's it. And we show them who he is, the beauty of his salvation. I believe in the brokenness of our, our country and the sinfulness of our world. I believe God wants to do something. I, I'm praying with all my heart we're about to see something amazing happen. That's my prayer. God doesn't waste moments like this, right? But it's a matter of how we respond. How will we respond? Where is your faith? Where is your strength? Are you being moved? Are you being frightened? Are you being shaken? We will not be moved. Even if the earth gives way because of who we believe in and the truth we stand on. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Acts. Excited about this series as we get back into it this summer. Lord, thank you for all the things you've wanted to teach us and you've been teaching us through uh, these last three summers and this will be the fourth one. Continue to open our hearts, God, to your mission. Make us a people who love you, not just a people who attend church, God. Life in you is so much more than attendance to a service. It's every day, every moment, every breath, knowing you and making you known. God, give us a passion and a burden Jesus, please, 
And if we're not shaken up now to consider what matters most, Lord, I'm frightened to think about what it's going to take. Help us to know what matters most, to stand in it and live for it, for you. We need you, Lord. God, we need you. And we love you. And we rest in you. And we hope in you. And we pray that your spirit would anoint and bless and fill every one of us to do the work that you've called us to. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.